Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome. My name is Michael Willis. I'm a fellow at the Middle East Centre here at St Anthony's, and it's my pleasure to introduce the seventh in our series this term of the Middle East Centre's Friday seminar series. Those of you who have been attending previous sessions will know that the theme of this term is after the Arab Spring, a region in conflict. And if you have been attending the lectures for the past six weeks, you will undoubtedly have left feeling much better informed about conflicts that have occurred across the region in Syria, Libya, Yemen, Egypt and Turkey. But you have probably not left with much of a spring in your step after what you've heard in the various weeks. For the broader Middle East region, it, it hardly needs to be stated, is in deep crisis, with violent crises of varying intensity occurring across large parts of the region on, on a daily basis. I hope, though, perhaps tonight, to lift people's spirits just a little bit by looking at perhaps what is the only one country in the region which has managed to retain some of the positive effects of the events of 2011 that swept across the region. I speak, of course, of the country of, of Tunisia. For this is the one country that was able to replace its long-standing dictatorship with a political system that is, with some minor caveats, a functioning democracy today. Furthermore, it has achieved this with relatively limited bloodshed and loss of life, certainly compared with most other neighbouring states that witnessed significant upheaval. Those dying as a direct result of events in 2011 still numbering in the low hundreds compared to the thousands, as we've sadly seen, in Libya, in Yemen, in uh, Syria, and also in Egypt. This is not to say, in the least, that the last six years in, in Tunisia have been smooth, anything but. But the current situation in Tunisia is not without its problems and ructions. Both our speakers, I think, tonight will explore some of the ongoing difficulties and problems that Tunisia is facing. However, it is an encouraging story in many aspects, and we want to look at both the, both the positives and the more difficult aspects of the situation in Tunisia. Now, before introducing formally our two speakers, Rory McCarthy and Fabio Moroni, this evening, I thought it might be useful to give you just a quick summary of the events of what have happened in Tunisia since 2011 to give you some form of context. I suspect that most of you will be familiar with some of the, the most prominent events that have occurred in Tunisia in this period, Mohamed Bouazizi setting himself on fire, the departure of the entrenched dictator Zin al-Abidin Ben Ali following mass demonstrations in Tunis, holding of democratic elections, the series of terrorist attacks in Tunis and Sousse, and then more positively, 18 months ago, the award of the Nobel Peace Prize to a group of Tunisians. That, perhaps you may not be aware of a broader story, which I think is important, which helps put in context what Rory and Fabio will be talking about this evening. So I just want to very briefly sketch out for you some of the things that would have happened since 2011. I conducted research in Tunisia before the revolution and then visited regularly, especially during the first four years following the departure of Ben Ali. So even though I haven't followed it nearly as closely as Fabio and, and Rory, I have visited and I have taken a significant uh, research interest in what's happened in Tunisia. In the immediate aftermath of the flight of Ben Ali on the 14th of January 2011, interim government, uh, which was covered, I think, very well in the protest and before attention moved on to what was happening in Egypt, interim governments were put in place by bodies that represented the breadth of the political spectrum in Tunisia that prepared the way for the holding of elections to a constituent assembly 
but was to play the dual role of both nominating an executive and drawing up of a post-revolutionary constitution. Elections to this new Constituent Assembly were held in October 2011, just nine months after Ben Ali had fled, and led to the Islamist Ennahda Party emerging as by far the largest party with 40% of the seats in the new Constituent Assembly. Banned and brutally suppressed during Ben Ali's rule, with most of its leaders and supporters either jailed or chased into exile abroad, a significant part of the leadership was based here in London for many years, Ennahda was formally legalised following the return of the leadership to Tunisia in the aftermath of the revolution. Now, to achieve a working majority in the, in the new Constituent Assembly was elected in October 2011, Ennahda entered into a formal coalition with two other leading parties of a, a broadly leftist and secular orientation, both led by leading opponents of the Ben Ali regime. So together, these parties formed what became known as the Troika government, and represented the coming to power of the established opposition to the Ben Ali regime. So it was not only the Islamists, but also leftist opponents to Ben Ali came together in a coalition government. Now, despite the positive aspects of this and the successful election of a democratic assembly and government, the first, I think it's important to, notice, uh, to note, in Tunisia's history, the following two years after the, the election of a constituent assembly proved to be very difficult and rather traumatic ones. The new government failed to make any headway in alleviating the considerable economic problems that Tunisia had and which provided much of the impetus of the original uprising and, of course, which the upheaval had exacerbated and worsened. And also, politically, it was a rough period. Opposition to the new government mounted and coalesced especially amongst significant parts of Tunisian society, but was hugely suspicious of the Nahda party and its Islamist orientation, which many felt posed a direct threat to Tunisia's secular uh, social and political structures that had been established, particularly during the presidency of Habib Bourguiba, who had preceded Ben Ali. Opposition to Nahda and its allies in the Troika government mounted through 2013, and reached particular heights following the assassination of two prominent leftist politicians, which critics blamed on at best the laxness and at worst the possible complicity of Ennahda as the main party in government. Opposition began to take a concrete form in the shape of a new party, Nida Tunis, the call of, of Tunisia, which drew to it many leftists and secularists, but also not a few figures associated with the old Ben Ali regime that had begun to organise themselves. And Nida Tunis was often seen as the old regime beginning to, to mobilise back. From the late summer of 2013, Nida Tunis, this new party and its allies, began to call loudly for the dissolution of the Troika government and the Constituent Assembly, which it claimed had lost its legitimacy and mandate, both through its incompet uh, incompetency in, in failing to tackle Tunisia's significant social and economic problems, and also for still not having drafted a new permanent constitution after two years. It was supposed to do the job in one year. Now, these calls, it has to be remembered, in the summer of 2013 and in moving into the autumn, um, took base in the abeyance for backdrop, of course, of the removal of, of Mohamed Morsi as president in Egypt and uh, the bloody suppression of his supporters in the Muslim Brotherhood. And for a few tense weeks in August 2013, it looked like Tunisia might well be teetering towards the sort of breakdown and conflict that was unfolding, and as we've seen unfold in Egypt, and which we heard earlier on in this lecture series about in full detail. However, this was remarkably, this scenario was remarkably avoided. And largely due, I think, to a number of factors. Firstly, 
a series of meetings between the president of Nahda, Rashid Ghanoushi, and the leader of Nida Tunis, Beji Kaida Sebsi, which lowered the temperature. Also, the intervention of a quartet of broadly civil society organization, the country's main, main trades union organization, the UGTT, the main employers organization, the lawyers association, and also the main human rights league came together and were able to mediate and negotiate a solution um, to the conflict that looked like heading towards the Egyptian scenario, which many people feared. The solution, this solution allowed the Troika to, to stay in power until the Constituent Assembly succeeded in improving a new constitution, the new document enshrining a, a new fully democratic political system with substantial personal rights and freedoms, and I think more importantly, receiving the near-unanimous support of every single member of the Assembly across the political spectrum, from left to Islamist to conservative. The new constitution notably excluded conservative clauses on religion, women and social freedoms that many feared Anatta might try to introduce. The constitution was hailed as quite a remarkable document. Now, following the new constitution's approval, the new Troika government stepped down in favour of a technocratic government that then helped prepare elections to a permanent parliament and state presidency. These elections duly took place in the autumn of 2014 and saw Nida Tunis, the new party that was challenging Nata, emerge as the largest party, winning 40% of the seats in the same way that Nata had won 40% uh, three years earlier. It became a dominant party in the new permanent a national parliament. And in the presidential elections the following month, the leader of Nida Tunis, Bejikai de Sebsi, became president of the country. So really it was a, a victory for what was regarded a party that had been put together to oppose Nata and oppose the, the previous government. <laughs> now fears in some quarters that the victory of Nida Tunis would presage some form of counter-revolution proved misplaced as the party struck deals with other parties to form a coalition government even bringing in a minister from its arch-rivals, Nahda. So in other words, even though they were bitterly opposed, they actually went into government together. Now, this move was partly due to the relative weakness of Nida Tunis, which began to break up into warring factions soon after the election, to the point that it, lo it lost its position as the largest party in the new parliament, and actually Nahda became the largest party because the, the leading party had broken up into factions. And it's ultimately led to Nahda having more positions in the government and assuming a bigger part in the coalition. The new president, the head of Nida Tunis, Bejikai de Sebsi, has also not used the president to assert more dictatorial powers, which was another fear. Perhaps influenced by, amongst other things, his advancing age. He turned 90 years old last November. Now, the coalition government since then has, has really faced two major problems beyond the, the breakup of the Nida Tunis party. Firstly, continuing economic problems, high unemployment, low growth, low foreign investment and mounting debt. The economy is kept ticking over by regular foreign loans from governments and institutions keen to keep Tunisia as a democracy afloat. That's, there's been a lot of support to try and keep what is regarded as one of the few successes to come out of the Arab Spring, the only success afloat. However, the country is witnessing widespread protests over these issues, which Rory McCarthy will talk about in detail in his presentation. Tunisia has also faced a mounting security challenge from its Islamist extremists whose popularity expanded in the aftermath of the revolution and Fabio Moroni will talk more about the extremists. 2015 as I'm sure you're aware saw major attacks against tourists, uh, foreign tourists visiting the Bardo Museum in Tunis 
and a beach resort in Sousse and against a, a security bus in central Tunis. Security has improved noticeably in the last 18 months, but concerns continue, particularly related to the estimated several thousand young Tunisians who have left to fight with ISIS in Iraq and Syria. In fact, some of the largest numbers going to fight with ISIS have come from Tunisia. March 2016 saw Daesh ISIS militants in Libya launch a major attack on a border town, Ben Gardan, in southern Tunisia. This has led the government to introduce a new anti-terrorism law that some have condemned as more draconian than that which operated under the old Ben Ali regime. Efforts to process and deal with the remnants and abuses of the old regime also occupy the government. As it debates legislation aimed at enticing members of the former regime to return looted funds to the country in return for leniency or even clemency, the sort of economic amnesty that bring back the money you stole and we'll treat you lightly. And there's a big debate going over that in Tunisia. There's also continuing criticism of the police and security forces, which many see as, re- as a remaining core of the both personal personnel and practice of the Ben Ali period. That's the one part of the system that often regarded as being the revolution hasn't overthrown as it perhaps it should in other areas. More positively, last November saw the first public sessions of the country's Truth and Dignity Commission, which broadcast testimonies from victims of a dictatorship, which produced emotional and quite gripping scenes as torture victims recounted their stories. On another more positive note, a year earlier, at the end of 2015, a group of Tunisians were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, namely the quartet of, I mentioned before, the National Trade Union, the Employers' Federation, the Lawyers' Association, and the main Human Rights League that had helped negotiate the difficult political deal of autumn 2013 and that had avoided a possible slide into conflict. But that's enough from me. That hopefully gives you some idea of the timeline of what has happened that both speakers will probably refer to this evening. I now want to introduce you to our two speakers this evening, which we're, we're delighted to join us. Speaking first is Dr. Rory McCarthy. Rory is a research fellow here at Magdalen College in Oxford. He's also a former Guardian correspondent in Jerusalem, Baghdad, and Afghanistan. He returned to academia, and I'm pleased to say that he is a graduate of St. Anthony's College, holding both a DPhil and the MPhil in modern Middle Eastern studies. Rory's doctoral research focused on the history and experience of the Nahda movement and party in the city of Sousse, and he has become a leading expert on both the Nahda and Islamism in Tunisia, publishing groundbreaking articles on Nahda, free speech, subject of secularism in modern Tunisia. His current research project focuses on emerging social protests in Tunisia. And we are privileged that we were one of the first audiences, perhaps the first audience, to hear his, his ongoing work and research into this. That's Rory. We're also very pleased to have Fabio Moroni with us. Fabio is a researcher at the University of Ghent in Belgium. He has become one of the leading authorities on post-revolutionary Tunisia and has written, published, written and published widely on the period. He has focused notably on the rise and the character of the more hardline Islamist movements and organizations in Tunisia, looking at the jihadi and Salafist movements there. He has just published a book that he co-edited entitled Salafism After the Arab Awakening, Contending with People's Power. Fabio's work has drawn predominantly from fieldwork that he's done on the ground in Tunisia, including spending a lot of time with people from these radical Islamist organizations. There's a lot of them written about what has happened in these organizations, but Fabio is one of the few people who's actually spent time on the ground talking to and understanding what this phenomenon is in Tunisia. We're particularly grateful for him coming here tonight to give us our views and insights into 
what is a phenomenon that we talk about a lot, as I said, but is often little understood. So I'm very delighted to have our two guests with us uh, this evening. So we begin with Rory. Rory. Thank you very much, Michael, for that introduction. Good evening, everyone. So I want to talk to you tonight about the other side of Tunisia's transition. This is very much a work in progress. I'm just at the early stages of this research, so don't expect too much. But this is about a side of the transition that I don't think we hear very much about, and that's the ongoing waves of protest that have continued in the years since the fall of the Ben Ali regime in 2011. And I'm interested in exploring why the number of protests is increasing and what this tells us about the new political reality that's being constructed. Evidently, what's happening in Tunisia doesn't compare to the, the fighting in Syria or in Yemen or the counter-revolution that's underway in Egypt. And what I'm about to say about protests shouldn't take away from the sort of achievements that Michael was describing two rounds of free and fair elections, a process of transitional justice that's beginning. And I'm not trying to predict that there's about to be a second revolution in Tunisia because actually what I think is most interesting is the competing efforts underway right now to prevent another revolution on, one, on the one hand and to, slot, to stop a slide back into the politics of the old authoritarian regime on the other. I have a more modest ambition tonight, which is to say that there's much to be learned from paying attention I think, to these protests, to how the political elite responds, and to what the protesters themselves are saying and doing, because contentious politics like this is not self-evident. Let's start with this, which shows you the increase in the number of protests in Tunisia. So the left-hand side of the graph is early 2014, and it ends over there with late 2016. And you can see there's been a significant increase in the number of protests. These are figures collected by a Tunisian research centre, there were about 1,000 protests in 2014, about 5,000 in 2015, and about 9,000 last year. Now, even if the research centre is overcounting, you can still see there's a very clear, rather dramatic increase. What sort of protests are they? Well, if you look at November 2016, the last month there that we have the best detail on, about 1,200 protests. It was one of the biggest months of the year, apart from January, and I'll talk about January a bit later. In November 2016, the protests were quite geographically focused in the interior of the country. So basically, the darker the colour, the more protests. So you're looking clearly at the interior. Sidi Bouzid, of course, the governorate where the revolution began. And also in Tunis as well. It's a little bit smaller in the top, but there have been plenty of protests in Tunisia. And also in Gafsa, which is dark red, which is where the phosphate mines are, which has got a history of protest. What sort of demonstrations are we talking about? I mean, these range from demonstrations in that month by school children who were complaining about the school calendar, about school holidays and exams, lots of protests about education at the moment, teachers also protesting against the Ministry of Education. There were protests against the government-run investment summit held in November last year, protests by labour unions, by doctors, lawyers, pharmacists. These people are particularly, at that time, were particularly anxious about the budget which was about to freeze public sector salaries. There were also clashes in Tunis between political demonstrators and the police. And, of course, there were sit-ins in front of the ministries in the capital and in the regions about unemployment. So there were collective acts of protest like that. There were also individual acts of protest that were recorded by this research centre. In Bizerte, a young student went on hunger strike for the right to retake his first year of university studies for the fourth time. In Jenduba, the head of the local farmers and fishermen's union staged a protest after he was badly beaten by police. In Mahdiya, a father staged a protest demanding uh, medical treatment in France for his son, who'd been shot by the police three years earlier. And there were a number of suicides and suicide attempts in that month, too. And that's also a very common thing. It didn't stop with Mohamed Bouazizi. 
And so maybe it's no surprise that one Tunisian academic described this as a public theatre of despair and death. So how has the political class responded? Well, I think broadly in two ways. Firstly, while the the early years of the transition were beset by a a real polarising identity politics, but what's happened since about 2013 is that political leaders are, are really pursuing a politics of consensus, which emerged in late 2013, as Michael described, when there was an effort, a successful effort in the end, to push Inata out of government. And that actually sparked a rapprochement between Esebsi, the president of Nida Tunis, the anti-Islamist party, effectively, and Rashid Khanoushi, the founder, leader of Inata, the Islamists. The two parties have been in coalition since early 2015, but they also back very similar policies. So in 2015, they both backed a draft economic reconciliation bill, as it was called, which hasn't yet been enacted, but if it is, it will offer an amnesty to former senior officials accused of misusing public funds, and it could close corruption cases against wealthy businessmen who profited during the Ben Ali years. So in other words, it's a way of protecting the political and business elite from the Ben Ali years. Last year, both these parties also supported a thing called the Carthage Agreement, which was a pact between nine political parties, some in government, some in the opposition, about forming a national unity government, also involving three trade unions, and which agreed a sort of priority programme, starting with the fight against terrorism. But this programme is, is post-ideological. There are no, it's not about ideology. It's about technocratic ambitions for government. It's about government efficiency, they say, development and economic growth, rectifying public finances. So in other words, there's no longer an ideological fight between these parties. I think you can make a very good argument to say that this consensus approach is perhaps appropriate for a transition. Perhaps it's helped to get us beyond the political polarisation of the early stages of the transition or to avoid what's happened in Egypt. But I also think we should remember that consensus is not new. It has a historical resonance in Tunisia. Political pacts have frequently been used in the past by authoritarian rulers to impose conformity and to restrain democratic challenges. So there was a pact under Bourguiba in 81 between some political parties. There was a pact under Ben Ali in 88. Particularly under Ben Ali, this consensus mode of government emerged as a way to stifle dissent. It's what the French scholar Beatrice Hibou calls the ideal of pacification and an anti-liberal criticism of pluralism. And anyway, if the current consensus approach was designed to stop public protest, it quite evidently hasn't. The second response, I think, from the political elite has been an inclination to slide back into the policies of the old regime. So this is partly about a sense that policies are reproducing Ben Ali's neoliberal agenda, an ongoing reliance on international financial organisations. It's about the economic elite trying to protect their interests, hence that economic reconciliation draft bill I mentioned. (coughs) A perception that corruption is not only continued but is increasing and a tendency, most importantly, to take a security-led response to these sorts of problems of protest. The president, the current president, Esebsi, you know, this veteran 90-year-old, was elected on a promise to strengthen security and to restore state prestige, Hebat al-Dawla, which, of course, is something you hear in Egypt too. After the attacks on the beach in Sousse in mid-2015, Esebsi said that exceptional circumstances require exceptional measures. And indeed, Tunisia has been under a state of emergency for most of the last six years. And a recent Amnesty International report produced evidence of arrests of men with beards or wearing religious clothes or breaking arbitrary nighttime curfews and police using beatings and electric shocks to extract forced confessions and holding detainees in the sort of stress positions that became infamous 
in the, in the years of the Ben Ali repression in the 1990s. In other words, there's a sense that the security sector hasn't changed at all. And if you look at the protests, they often define themselves, I think, as a reaction against these trends. So the protests are not about individual material self-interest. It's not about jobs, or it's not solely about jobs and financial handouts. In fact, there's a widespread sense, I think, among young people that they're excluded from their own society and from the political transition that's taking place. This consensus doesn't include them. And that's why their demands are framed in terms of asking for dignity and social justice. And like most other places in the Arab world, at the moment the young are more educated and urbanised than any generation before, but they grow up in cities where there's not enough housing or public services and where poverty sits alongside new conspicuous wealth. And I think this long-term marginalisation of young people from the workplace has produced profound frustration and disillusionment with the functioning of the state. And it's not just the unemployed, it's the precariously employed too. So there are several thousand young Tunisians hired in special government work programmes in recent years, chantier, which are very poorly paid and which lack social security protections. Let's have a look at the sort of evidence for what I'm trying to say. I'm going to give you some examples of uh, two or three of the protests that are happening, that have been happening over the past couple of years. The protests are a complex mixture of different organising styles, but we can say that they're rarely organised by long-standing groups. They're not from political parties or civil society groups in general, although I think perhaps the trade unions are an exception. Sometimes spontaneous, sometimes carefully considered projects, often involving young people in rather loosely organised groups. I want to start in Kasserine in January 2016. When I showed you the chart of the increase in protests, there was a big uptick in January 2016, and that's because of what happened in Kasserine. Unemployed graduates there had staged a sit-in at the regional governor's office a year earlier asking for work. They'd been promised jobs, and then when they turned up to, to take those jobs, to get their contracts they found that several of them had been dropped off the list, arbitrarily dropped off the list. And one of those who was dropped off the list electrocuted himself during a protest, and that sparked a wave of demonstrations that spread across the country. Police clashes with demonstrators. I mean, this looks just like what was happening in 2011. There was a nationwide nighttime curfew for two weeks. What were they demanding? The right to work, an end to local corruption, the need for development, positive discrimination in government spending. That means spending on the interior, the marginalised interior regions like Gasserine, which is one of the poorest regions of the country, and opposing government policies of exclusion, as they called it. If I just show you one of the statements, so this is a statement that was issued by one group of the demonstrators, not all of them, but just one group that was staging a sit-in at the headquarters of the governorate. A statement they released on Facebook, but it's written as if it's you know, one of those bayonet issued in, in the kind of coup years of the 1950s and 60s. Communique number four, Oh, you rebelling masses, are you proud people? We bring to the notice of public opinion the following. And then they listed a whole series of points about what they were asking for and how they were going to protest. And I just want to show you one of them. Our determination to, so they're expressing our determination to boldly pursue our social struggle against the system of corruption, dictatorship, hated centralization, which has been perpetuated by the bureaucracy and which has marginalized the region. So this is an interior region complaining about centralization that Political parties have been promising for six years that they're going to resolve and they haven't got to it yet. It's also about acute, an acute sense of humiliation, uh, a sense that the region is, that the state only wants this region to provide cheap manual labour. The protests involved young and unemployed men and women, some graduates, others not, strong working class orientation, I think, well beyond the remit of formal political parties involving public demonstrations, sit ins, 
and confrontations with the police, like that photo I showed you. Government response was arrests, promise of new jobs. They always promised these jobs. Essepsi, the president, said there were malicious hands at work behind these protests. So you see that sort of discourse from the old regime emerging. This is a second protest movement which emerged in Tunis. It emerged in mid-2015. This is them demonstrating in 2016. Manish Masama, I do not forgive, I will not forgive. This, is, this come from, came from students and young graduates, much more middle-class orientation, much smaller, mobilising through Facebook mostly, against this economic reconciliation bill that I mentioned earlier, this bill that would effectively give an amnesty to those guilty of financial corruption. You see on their T-shirts they have a judge's gavel. The point of that is to say that it should be the courts that decide whether these people are guilty or not, not not some law that gives them a blanket amnesty. The people behind it had taken part in the 2011 uprising. They'd also learnt a lot from protests in Europe and the States, so they created a participatory horizontal leadership structure. There's no one leader, there's no one spokesman. They call themselves a campaign, not a movement, not a party. And as far as they're concerned, they were trying to revive the momentum of the 2011 uprising. And they felt that the bill was not just about amnestying the corrupt. It was a broader effort to overturn the achievements of the uprising and to go back to the, old, the style of governing of the old regime. So this is one of, the, one of the leaders from this horizontal leadership. He said, we should understand that the law of reconciliation, that's this amnesty law, or it's a draft law, is just a detail, a small part in the whole process of restoring the old regime, or at least of reproducing the same system. The Manish Vassamah campaign is engaged in a revolutionary process. That's how they see themselves, as if they're trying to continue that fight from 2011. Explicitly a political act of protest, subverting this dominant narrative of consensus and stability and reconciliation. A small movement with demonstrations mostly in Tunis but elsewhere too. And actually so far it's managed to prevent this bill being enacted, even though most parties in the parliament support the bill. Both Nida Tunis obviously because it's their people it's going to protect, but also the Islamists are supporting it too. And then a third example that's slightly different, this is from the Jemna Oasis in the south of Tunisia. In early in 2011, just after the uprising, farmers in Jemna reclaimed this land where these date palms grow in this oasis, about 150 acres, sorry, 150 hectares of a date palm oasis. It was originally common farming land taken by the French during colonisation, nationalised after independence, and then leased at very low rents to two companies connected to the Ben Ali family. They've been harvesting the land, they've been hiring workers, but most importantly, they, so this has been organised by the local community, they created their own association. And most importantly, they've been redirecting the profits back into the community, building a, a building for weekly markets, buying an ambulance to take patients to nearby hospitals, rebuilding schools, giving money to local charities. It's a new form, effectively, of social relations, and if you look at how they frame what they're doing, it's like this. This is one of the organisers. The state's policies and approaches are based on capitalism, and Gemna's experiment is a social, participative, collaborative experiment, and this is against state policies. The battle is political. So you see what they're trying to do here is challenge the, the, the way the state is functioning and offer an alternative set of social relations. So I think those three examples show, in Kasserine, the Manish Masama campaign in Tunis and what's happening in Gemna, show the range of social and political activism and the way protesters are configuring their demands, which is pushing back at state policies, but doing so in a vocabulary that's not trying to overturn the current system, rather hold it accountable to its promises. 
So it's a claim for full citizenship rights and inclusion, and a lot of the language they use is actually reflected in the Constitution. So, for example, in Kasreen, when they ask for positive discrimination in spending, that's in the Constitution. It's, it obliges the government to discriminate positively in favour of marginalised regions. And I think, most importantly, in all these cases, political parties are not involved. There's been a loss of faith in parties. You can see that through the declining turnout at elections. Some of the activism, activism I've described is a direct inversion of the parties, this horizontal structure that Manish Masama has, for example. So the protests are an expression of frustration at the way parties are, and the political political class is operating, the sense that this politics of compromise and consensus at the centre doesn't include many Tunisians, a sense that there's less and less that distinguishes the major political parties. I mean, if neither Tunis and Nata actually agree on so many policies, I think that demonstrates that ideological ideological battles have, have gone. And I think even though this consensus approach has been awarded a Nobel Prize, and it certainly helped negotiate the end to a very tense period of political battles, it's it's an approach that for many remains exclusive, that stifles opportunities for dissent and debate. But of course, if you look more closely, there there are internal tensions within this process of consensus that I think are at least in part driven by these political protests, by this activism that we've seen on the street. So the main trade union, the UGTT, has been pushing back in the last few months against the freeze on a proposed freeze on public sector salaries and an effort to reduce the size of the bureaucracy, which is one of the demands of the IMF, who are lending money to Tunisia. One of the two ministers linked to the UGTT in government has just been sacked, apparently signs of growing discord between this consensus politics and the, and the union. The IMF has delayed delivering a second tranche of its $2.9 billion loan because the bureaucracy is too big and hasn't been shrunk enough. The finance minister says we'll respond by privatising three banks and cutting up to 10,000 jobs from the administration. Finally, what I'm saying is not to denigrate the success of the Tunisian transition thus far or to say that it's fatally flawed because it's not, but rather this is to say that these ongoing protests are raising questions about the transition, proposing new challenges, I think, around questions of citizenship and social relations. And it says that the revolutionary process of political, social and economic change that began in 2011 has not yet run its course. Thank you. Uh, so hello to everybody. Just check my time to be just like Rory, perfectly in time. What I wanted to do today actually was to talk to you about, which I think a big interesting part of the Tunisian story, which I think it is the development of this big uh, Salafist movement, radical Salafist movement. But of course, I mean, I have to start, I mean, we have to start each time from a question. I think that. Everybody is asking this kind of question. I mean, what is such a contradiction? I mean, a country that we just mentioned as being a model into a democratization process produced at the same time a big Salafist radical movement. What a strange contradiction, isn't it? What it looks like. I'm trying to ask to this question. I just I want to show you if you find any contradiction. Those are my guys, Ansar Sharia. Here they are trying to be very nice. That's the highest point. It's a press conference. They made, that's really in 2013, on May, the government just, they outlawed their rally because each year they were making just like a political party, a national rally, you know, just in public, having all the activists gathering. They wanted to convince that they were becoming moderate. We don't want jihad, we want dawah, we want to preach, we don't want to make war. That was the message. But at the same time, because they are radical, they are really radical, I mean, Salafist radicals, 
they want to say to their audience, wait, I mean, we are becoming a normal Islamist Jamea, but we are still revolutionary. So in the middle of the press conference, this guy, Sefedin Rice, the most political guy of the group, just said, answering to a journalist, we asked the permission for the rally, because the state was, the, was asking them to, for a permission, for a legal authorization to make this rally. They said, we ask the authorization to nothing but to God. So this phrase was the start of the end of Ansar al-Sharia. So the, all the press picked this phrase, forgetting all the attempt to be moderate, to be nice guys, and they went slower and slower, throwing an escalation, which ended up in, in August 2013 in outlawing the movement, declaring it a terrorist organization. Those are terrorist guys. What about it? So these are the jihadi revolutionary bad guys. This is Abu Ayyad, the leader, a former Al-Qaeda guy. It doesn't look like democratic, does he? And this is democracy. So what a contradiction, isn't it? This is Tunisian democracy. This is democ uh, the parliament, voting election, the national ethem. So let's go back to the question. I mean, my thesis actually is that there is the development of this such movement is nothing but the consequence of the democratization. It's not a contradiction. So in order to explain that, of course, I'm not saying the Salafis are democratic. They have an alternative project to democracy, to liberal democracy. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that my point of view is that Islamism is an ideology, it's a political ideology, which developed in the last 20 years and declined into a moderate, into a radical. So Salafist jihadists, into their 17, 18 years version, they tend to be apocalyptic. They tend to be less political in a purely sense of the politics, but they tend to develop into a radical Islamist movement. It's too much to, say, to explain everything in 20 minutes, so just be happy for, for definition today. And let's talk about a little bit how developed this experiment of Ansar al-Sharia, which I think is very interesting. I will try to, to show you by telling you the story of how developed Ansar al-Sharia and what is its relationship with Nahda, Nada is the mainstream moderate Islamist party, which is in government now. By showing that, I, I hope that I will make you the sense of how, how much politics there is into Islamist politics, even into East Salafist jihadi version. So this is my thesis. And those are the three big steps I want to go through with you to understand the evolution of this movement between 2011 and 2013, the moment I was in the middle of this story. So it was really a very hot period, 2011, 2013, a very big contention period. So three moments, I will, I will tell you a first moment in which there is a rivalist, revivalist movement, Sahwa al-Islamiyah, no? There is, uh, again, everybody after revolution want to go back to Islam. Again, I can, cannot go into details because it's too much, but just, just let's accept it. After revolution, there is a big going back feeling to Islam. People want to go back to Islam. They want to rediscover Islam. They want to go back to the sources. They pretend the dictatorship was something against Islam, and democracy now is going back to freedom, to going back to Islam. And this is what we call Sahwa, revivalist uh, movement. They were able to transform this revivalist movement to a Jamea. Jamea is translated as society. It's the beginning of something of a movement or a political party in religious terms. Eh? And then we will see in a second step how they will try a politic of the Islamic front. Just like in the 30s, the communists, no, with the socialists. 
a politic of the front. There is a polarization in society, secular against Islamist, and Tsar Sharia calls Nada say, let's come together. There is a worse enemy, the secular, let's make a front. And this is very political mind, did you say that? And then finally they are outlawed and the strategy changes and becomes insurgent, insurgency, attack, attacking the state. I want to go through this, this period, if you are happy with that. 2011, a few people noticed, comes after almost 10 years, the decade 2010s of, of jihadism, of international jihadism. <coughs> 2001, everybody knows about uh, uh, 9-11, but then there was the Afghanistan war, and then there was the Zarqawi experience. Zarqawi was this guy that tried first to make an Islamic state in Iraq, the grandfather of the today's people. And this guy was very bloody guy. He made an innovation into uh, the jihadi practice of war, introduced the anti-Shia feeling, introduced the, the tactics of being terrorizing the enemy. So slaughtering them and showing in them into the videos as a politics or propaganda. There was a disaster, it was a disaster because all peoples went against him. Most normal people don't accept that. And so the Al-Qaeda leadership started from 2005 on into a revision of the strategy of the jihad. So after 10 years of revision, there is a new trend that is coming out, which some people call a Maoist kind of jihadism. Means people, we just are not blinded. We, we have to look for consensus. Let's try to merge into social movements. So when this uh, Islamization after the revolution came out, there was a bunch of people in Tunisia that wanted to, to take advantage, let's say, of the Arab Spring. In accordance with Zawahiri, the new leader of Al-Qaeda, they said the Arab Spring is a chance for us. So because the people liberated themselves, there is a new free space. Let's try to make a new project, a new Islamic radical project, without declaring jihad. I mean, our purpose is not just making the war. Our purpose is making an Islamic state. So Ansar Sharia, when I met those guys, they were telling me about a reformist jihadi movement. It's very weird. But that's where they were trying to convince, in the picture I showed you before, that if they don't attack us, why should we attack them? It was a very democratic principle in the sense, just leave us between us and the people. If we are able to find the consensus, the people should not stop us because we are just working through consensus. It's meaning we are convincing people. If people don't like us because we are crazy, I mean, we have a strange type of Islam they don't like, okay, we will be the losers. But just leave us with our own means. So they started to make social activities, DAO activities on the street, and tents, etc., uh, etc. Et I'm not going into the details. And they were successful. They were getting a lot of people with, behind them, especially in uh, working class neighborhoods. And they became to build up this Jamea, which was the beginning of a kind of a political organization. By 2012, 2013, for some people in Tunisia was too much. Nada in the government and Salafists on the streets, too much. So, of course, Islamization brings with behind it, in a sense, the polarization. Because we are talking about people that, through this special idea of politics, which is Islamism, they are able to put in practice, I mean, a, an alternative. If you want a revolutionary project, but which is about morality, so about ethics. 
which is quite controversial for another side of the population. So there is usually a reaction, there is a split in society, but by 2012-2013, Tunisia is divided in two, really. You have two opposite camps, uh, Islamists and Islamists. I mean, actually, it's the same in everywhere in the, the region. In Libya is the same, you know, in, in Egypt is the same, and in Syria is the same. So what happened? You have three options in this case. One camp gain on the other. Okay? So in the Egyptian case, let's go back to the authoritarian state, it's better. Security for democracy, for freedom. Better authoritarian system than Islamist. Second option, either camps gain, outcome, civil war, Libya. Third case, what I call middle, cl- middle class compromise. So the, the idea of Rory, the consensus idea, middle classes, moderate parties get along. You know, they find a compromise, but they exclude the others. So this is the Tunisia story. This is the Tunisia story. So 2013 is the price, I mean, the outlawing of Ansari Sharia is the price to pay for the success of the Tunisian democracy, democracy of middle classes. Of course, I'm not judging here. I mean, was it really possible to build up institute, democratic institution with such a radical movement? I'm not being moralist. I'm not trying to make a point here whether they should leave them to, to develop or not. I mean, it's really difficult to judge. This is really policy-minded approach. But I'm just telling you that analytically, I mean, this is much closer to the reality because this was a successful radical project. So what happened in this case? Back to normal. I mean, what is back to normal? It's the Arab Spring was a parenthesis. It was a special period of freedom. It was very clear in Tunisia, this perception in 2011, 2012. And we go back to normal. Now we have good Islamists, the Nahdawi one in Tunisia, okay? They agreed to government. They accepted liberal democracy, etc., etc. But still we have the bad guys. You know, the bad guys are the Salafists. And there's one way to deal with the issue. I mean, the confrontation, you know, the crackdown. That's what happened. That's what happened. In 2013, uh, there is a clash of the Salafists, just very similar to the clash that 20 years before, at the beginning of the 90s, was against Nahda, which is in government now. This time was against Salafist jihadists. And the geopol- at the same time, the geopolitical uh, regional situation changed, and the Islamic State came as a new option. And back to normal means that from national, we go back to the international, meaning from national political uh, options, like building up something here in Tunisia or in Libya, uh, the national space became close again, so we go back where there is a space, the international. In this case, the Islamic State provided an alternative solution, which was the building up of the Islamic State, which opened up a big debate into the international jihadi communities, which is also very interesting. If you want to go back to that, we can talk maybe in the questions. I cannot go into the details. But for what is Tunisian case, we have three options. Imagine to have a, another question, where are they? You know? But the outcome of this crackdown gave, gave a three options, three outcomes. The first one, you have the guys that just, that just kept calm in Tunisia. They are arrested now. They are under strict control, and they say, okay, let's wait for a better time. The second option is the insurgency. The insurgency has split into options. The first one is... Those guys. This is Okuba Bilunefa. The second option is those guys. So, what is the difference for you? I don't know if you can get. I mean, catch. I mean, I think that by pictures you can catch some differences. What do you think? 
Are they the same or not? They are very different. Eh? Those people are Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb. It's really typical insurgency, you know, guerrilla style, uh, South American guerrilla style. They don't want to, they don't attack civilians. They only attack the state, which is called the Tahut. So only police, only the state buildings, only the state. Those people, they have an alternative. They are not just making attacks to the states. This is an army. This is an army of a new state. If you want a conquering army, and they want to show off. So we are not just eating. A guess we are building up. We are empowering the space that we occupy. So it's a new conception. I mean, it's a new strategy. In Tunisia, you have some people from Ansar Sharia that went into the frontier with Algeria and joined this group, which is an offshoot of Al-Qaeda in the North Africa, and declared the, the war against the state. But for them, it was very clear. We are giving them back what they are doing to us. It was very typical, politically leasable strategy. It's insurgency. Typically, even the statements are very clear. I mean, you arrested those guys, we're giving you back. We were trying to make dawah, you didn't want it. So we're, you, you, the only means you gave us is responding by arms. It's very politically clear. Those guys, they don't mind about hitting civilians. Those are the guys of Susa, the guys of Barto, those attacks. We don't, we don't mind to, to hit civilians, but no Muslims. So still they are making politics eh? within, a, within a religious frame. So, conclusion. There was a revivalist movement in Tunisia after revolution. I told you what it's about. I mean, all people wanted to go back to religion. There was this strong feeling. Everybody to its own way. But Islamism was not anymore the Ikhwani Islamism. Those are an old generation. There is a new generation of Islamists, more radical. And they framed their Islamism into a Salafist radical, jihadi version. In Tunisia, because of its particular story, there was not an articulation of the political Islamic configuration. So there is a void, an emptiness. There's only Nahda, there is another public, Islamic public, which is not represented today. This evolution happened in the midst of the international evolution of the jihadi movement, which in some trends, which today is the one behind Al-Qaeda, is in a sense trying new experiments. This experiment was given the chance to be experimented into the Arab Spring. It did fail because we are back to the same story the international jihad. But I guess that, just a guess, just like Nahda in the 90s, Salafis will come back. They will need to be represented in a way or another if democracy wants to be accomplished. Thank you. <laughs>